Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue through the Sermon on the Mount this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20 this morning. This is what the Word of God says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them, or does them and teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, we ask that you would teach us. Lord, we thank you for your living word. Father, we thank you that it is as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. We thank you that this is what we can base our life on, that you have given your people your words, and we are so grateful for that, Father. So, Lord, as we look at what this passage is saying to us, teach us through your Spirit, and Lord, we ask that degree by degree, you make us more into the image of Jesus. Give us understanding this morning, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as we uh, continue through the Sermon on the Mount, we took several weeks together to look at the Beatitudes, and we talked about how the Beatitudes outline Christian character. And then we talked about last week how that Christian character is salt and light in the world as we live it out amongst others. And, and next week, we're going to look more specifically at how Christians are salt and light when we start to dig into Jesus' further teachings on Christian character. And next week, we're going to start by looking at what Jesus has to say about anger. That'll be fun. But we're going to look at these four verses this morning that kind of split those two sections up. These four verses that we just read are actually some of the most debated verses in Jesus' sermon, and opinions vary on what is specifically meant by Jesus' words here in relation to the law and the Old Testament, and, and subsequently, then, how we relate to it as followers of Christ. And so these verses have raised many questions for followers of Christ over the years. Questions such as, did Jesus not abolish the law through the new covenant so that we are no longer bound to it or need to follow it? If Christ says none of the law passes away until all is accomplished, then what law is he referring to? Is he talking about the entire law? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Is he talking just about the moral laws? What does he have in mind here? And how does this relate to our freedom in Christ? Is he saying that we are required to continue to follow the Old Testament? 
So these are some of the questions that have been debated throughout the history of the church. And this morning, I'm hoping that I can faithfully and as accurately as I can teach on these four verses and what I believe Jesus means here, and hopefully remove for you some of those lingering questions that you may have about what this means and how we relate to the Old Testament and the prophets. And so I'm going to approach it this morning by asking questions and then answering those questions. And so the first question that we're going to approach is, did Jesus abolish or put an end to the law and the prophets? And if not, are we absolutely bound to the law? And the prophets. See, Jesus begins this section of teaching with a unique saying that he actually only uses in one other place in all of his teaching. He starts this section by saying, Do not think. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In these following verses, Jesus is presenting the purpose for why he had come, and he states explicitly here, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And by wording it in the negative, do not think, he is making an assumption, though it's not really an assumption for someone who knows the inner being of man. But he is saying that those whom he is teaching hold to an incorrect view. They're thinking something about his relation to the law that is not correct. And there were so many differing views about the Messiah's relation to the law and the prophets. And one of those views was that the Messiah would come and he would replace the old law with a brand new one and would render it null and would render it void. And so he's clearing up these misunderstandings that existed about him and the kingdom that he was ushering in by saying, do not think that I have come to remove the law and the prophets, rendering them void as some of you believe I have come to do. And he makes this very clear in verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now that little saying, not an iota and not a dot, we've all heard it, but it's a funny little saying to us. But, not, but the word iota actually refers to a Greek letter that refers back to a Hebrew letter, Yod. And that Hebrew letter, Yod, is the smallest letter in the entire Hebrew language. Meanwhile, the, the word dot, sometimes trans translated tittle or stroke, refers to the smallest stroke that is used in the Hebrew language, kind of like an apostrophe or a period in English. And so, Jesus is making it very clear how he views the law and the prophets in his mind, and therefore how we should view the law and the prophets as his followers. Not only does he say that it did not, he did not come to abolish them or do away with them, but he says none of it passes away, down to the smallest letter, down to the tiniest stroke. It all remains until everything is accomplished. And when Jesus says everything is accomplished, he's talking about the end of the age when he returns to usher in fully the kingdom of God. And so the conclusion that we must come to from these verses is that Jesus holds the highest possible view of the authority of the Old Testament, which very clearly flies in the face of claims that some well-meaning Christians have made that the Old Testament is basically irrelevant now, that we don't need to worry about it. In fact, Jesus 
gives a warning about that kind of thinking that would diminish the significance of the Old Testament in Matthew 5.19. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to be clear that Jesus is not referring here to a loss of salvation. Because he's saying a person will still inherit the kingdom of heaven, but they will be considered least. But it is, at minimum, a warning against thinking and teaching that you can disregard the Old Testament scriptures as irrelevant. The result of which will affect your standing in heaven, but not your salvation. There's a lot we could talk about that, standing in heaven and all that stuff, but that's for another time. And so we can conclude that Jesus very clearly says from these verses that he did not abolish the law and the prophets. And he warns his people not to diminish the authority of them. And so what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? Does it mean that we are still bound to them? We need to consider that question, and we're going to in a moment. First, I want to determine what does Jesus mean by law and prophets? So that we know exactly what we're talking about. And so what does Jesus mean by the law and the prophets? Does he mean the Ten Commandments? Does he mean the law that's laid out in Leviticus? Does he mean the moral law? What prophets is he referring to? The minor prophets or just the major prophets? What does he have in mind here? And I think the best answer to this is the most straightforward answer. When Jesus says the law and the prophets, he is referring to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. And this is a conclusion I think best fits due to the usage of the term law and prophets because the writers of the New Testament use the term law and prophets all throughout to refer to different aspects of the Old Testament. And so it means the Old Testament as a whole. And if you want to check that, for those of you who are Bible nerds, you can look up Matthew 7.12, Matthew 11.13, Luke 16.16, John 1.45, Acts 13.15, Acts 28.23, Romans 3.21. All of these show that Jesus' idea of the law and the prophets refers to the entirety of the Old Testament. And so then, the next question we have to ask is, well, what does Jesus mean when he says that he came to fulfill it? What does that mean that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets? As he says in Matthew 5.17, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And a major clue to what this means is in how Jesus words his sentence in verse 17. If you look at it, the way that he states his sentence, he says it in a way that places himself in storyline of history along with the law and the prophets. He doesn't present himself as separate or unrelated to what had come before. Nor does he teach that he is a new path that kind of veers off from it. Rather, he teaches that he is the further revelation of the storyline of history and a part of God's plan that came before and will continue after him. And so he just fits into this plan that God has made. He's not separate from it. It doesn't null and void what happened before. Jesus is fitting himself into the timeline of God's redemptive history 
in which he follows the law and the prophets. So he hasn't come to abolish what was accomplished through those things because it is all part of God's grand plan. But he is the next phase in that plan. And his role is fulfilling what has occurred and has been written about before him. You you often hear Christians speak of the fact that Jesus has done a new thing. Right? That he has done something brand new, and he absolutely has done something brand new. But we can't have the perspective when we say that, that Jesus has done a new thing that doesn't fit into or disregards all that has come before. Jesus has done a new thing and is doing a new thing that fulfills and reveals the true meaning of what has come before. Meaning that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets in that they point to him and he is the consummation or the fruition or the achievement of them and so then if jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has come before how does jesus fulfill the law and the prophets and he does it in at least two main ways first Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets by who he is and the actions that he takes. We have to always keep in our minds that the Old Testament events have a prophetic nature to them that points to Jesus Christ. In fact, in the first four chapters of Matthew's gospel, if you go back and read them, Matthew takes great effort to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets and how those events that occurred before and prophecies that came before point to Jesus. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus Christ to show that how the history of the Old Testament works toward Jesus Christ. Matthew highlights that the fulfillment of the virgin birth that was prophesied by Isaiah, as well as the fulfillment location of that birth, was fulfilled in Mary and in Jesus' birth location. Matthew points out the exodus from Egypt was a prophetic event pointing to how God would call his son out of Egypt after Mary and Joseph fled there because of Herod. He highlights how the killing of the boys under the age of two by Herod was a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. How John the Baptist was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy regarding the voice in the wilderness. He highlights how the location of the start of Jesus' public ministry fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. And that's just in the first four chapters of Matthew. All throughout Matthew, we see him arguing for Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In addition to what Matthew points out in the opening chapters of his gospel, there are countless other examples of the prophetic nature of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Abraham trusting God and God counting it to him as righteousness is exactly what happens when we trust in Christ. We trust in Christ, believe in him, and God counts it to us as righteousness. Peter in his first epistle points to how the flood of Noah's day points to judgment and salvation through Jesus Christ, and he further points to how it relates to water baptism of the believer in Christ. The promised land that they were trying to get to for 40 years is a reflection of the great promise that we have with Christ in eternity and the great land that we will inherit through him. Moses, who led God 
God's people points to a greater leader of God's people. And Moses himself said that God would raise up a greater leader, and that leader is Jesus Christ. The tabernacle, which was built to symbolize God's presence with his people, the writer of Hebrews says was a sign of the greater presence that was going to come in Jesus Christ when he tabernacled with us, with his people. And of course, the priesthood and the sacrifices pointed to the greatest priest that would come and the ultimate sacrifice that he would give for his people. This is by no means an exhaustive list of what we can see in the Old Testament that points to Jesus, that shows that he is the fulfillment of it. Let me give you the clearest example of my mind, of how, in my mind, of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. You might ask, are we still under the sacrificial system? We must not be because we don't offer animal sacrifices or offerings anymore. Well, think about this. How have you been forgiven of sin and brought into new life? It was through Jesus' sacrifice. We are free from sin and forgiven only because he died and rose again. You remove that sacrifice and we are lost. And so, no, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, but only because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient once for all, not because we don't require the covering of a sacrifice anymore. We live under the covering of Christ's sacrifice. And no, we don't offer grain offerings. We don't offer burnt offerings anymore. But what do we offer? We offer our entire life as an offering to God. Our mind, our heart, our body, our soul, all of us we give to God as an offering through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, chapter 1, or Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you see how Christ fulfills the law and the prophets through who he is and his actions rather than abolishing them? The second main way that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets is by his teaching. And we'll see this very clearly as we begin to go, go to the next sections of the Sermon on the Mount starting next week, week, especially as we look through verse 21 to verse 48. We have to understand that as we go through those verses, beginning next week as Jesus teaches us that he is not abolishing the Old Testament teaching, right? He's fulfilling it. So how do we then view the Old Testament? I love what D.A. Carson says. He says, The Old Testament's real and abiding authority must be understood through the person and teaching of him to whom it points and who so richly fulfills it. And so Jesus is not terminating the Old Testament's relevance and authority, but as Douglas Moo states, the period during which men were related to God under its terms ceased with John. Luke 16, 16 to 17 tells us this. The law and the prophets were until John. So at this point, some of you may be wondering, this is all well and good, 
But what does it matter? The practical application for this, for my life. Why does it matter to me? And I want to give you three reasons why it matters. Reason number one is that it is a reminder that Jesus presents himself as the goal, as the fulfillment of what the Old Testament points to. He is in the position of being the sole authoritative interpreter of it. Since everything points to him, since he is in the position of the one that fulfills it, he and he alone is the only authoritative interpreter of what it says. You see, the Lord has given his church teachers and evangelists and offices for the building up of the church. And as a teacher, I pour over the scriptures and I pray and I prepare to teach them, but I am not infallible. I labor to present to you wholeheartedly and without preconceived notions what the scriptures say. But this is why I always say to you every time before we start, turn in your Bibles. Do you have your Bibles with you? Because I want you to have them. I want them to be open in front of you so that you can see what we're going through for yourself. I want this to be happening in your homes. Your Bibles open before you, spending time in the Word with God. Not a podcast, not a commentary, not another sermon. All of those are helpful, and I use them, but we need to be in the Word of God so that the Spirit of Christ can can teach us what it means, so that we are getting it from our authority, who is Jesus Christ and the Spirit that He has placed within us. Yes, along with this, we need to have those who are trusted, who have been placed in authority to teach us and to guide us and to direct us and be willing to be corrected when we err. But all too often, I find, in Christianity these days, we give full and complete authority to a teacher, that that teacher's word is law. Jesus is the sole interpreter of the Scriptures, the sole authoritative interpreter of the Word of God. Reason number two. I said earlier, we'll see how Jesus' teaching fulfills the law and the prophets as we go through verses 21 to 48. So as we go through Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, and as you read the teachings all through the New New Testament in general, do not view them as a replacement of the law. I think so many followers of Christ automatically do this, that they are replacements of the law. They are not. In them, Jesus is showing what the law point to. You see, the heart has always been the most important thing to God. In the giving of the law, it was about governing people's hearts. But fallen and broken people twist its meaning and twist its focus. And Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are bringing us back to the true meaning and God's intention of His law. And this is likely why you're going to see as we go through the teachings in the coming verses, Jesus actually starts every teaching with, you have heard it said. And I think it's interesting that he starts that way. He says, you have heard it said instead of it is written, 
Because what is written is authoritative, but how it was taught through the oral tradition was at times a wrong interpretation of what was written. And so he corrects it, saying, you have heard it said. Reason number three, which is probably the most foundational, probably the most important of all three, and I take it from verse 20. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will, not, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, now, interesting, a lot of people take that as Jesus attacking the scribes and the Pharisees. But I don't actually think that's what he means there in that moment. I think Jesus' point here is that the scribes and the Pharisees they were really good at keeping the law. They were really good at doing what they were supposed to do. They had an incredibly high standard in accordance with the law that would be near impossible for people to match. So I don't think Jesus was pointing out that they weren't good at keeping the law. I think he was pointing out that they aren't good enough. That their hearts are not correct in how they're keeping the law. I think he's pointing out the fact that if even the scribes and Pharisees can't do it correctly, how can anyone else? It says, James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So the point point Jesus is making is even the scribes and the Pharisees, who are viewed as the righteous ones in Jewish society, in all of the effort, could not be perfect. In all of their effort, would still fail. They could not achieve what was needed through the law. One commentator said this, while their multiplicity of regulations could give rise to a good, good society, it domesticated the law and lost the radical demand and absolute holiness demanded by the Scripture. What Jesus demanded is the righteousness to which the law truly points. And in that sense, is the greatest sense in which the law and prophets point to Jesus Christ, in which the law and prophets have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. No man, no woman, can live a perfect enough life to fulfill the radical demand for absolute holiness, to be required required to be in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That is the greatest way in which Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets point to the need for a Savior. The law and the prophets point to the fact that we cannot achieve salvation on our own. That we cannot achieve righteousness in our own power. That we need someone to do it. And so Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, came and lived the life that we could never live, fulfilling the law in a way that we could never fulfill so that we could have life through Him and be saved to relationship with our Father in Heaven. This is the greatest way in which Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. And it is what every man and every woman and every child needs, a Savior. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we give praise to you this morning for your Son, that he did what every single one of one of us not do. In this world, people are always trying to look for ways to be righteous, but it is often self-righteousness. It is a broken righteousness. It is one that counts for nothing before you. Father, you have created this world. You have given us laws by which we are to be governed by. And through sin, none of us, none of us is good enough. But we thank you for your grace, Lord. Knowing that we could not live what is needed, that you sent your Son, that you sent Jesus to die for us, that he was a part of your plan, that he is a fulfillment of what has, what has come before. Lord, we give you praise for our Savior this morning. Father, help us to relate correctly to the Old Testament through Jesus Christ. Father, may we not, not diminish what your word says. It is canon. It is authoritative. Teach us how to relate to it through our relationship with Christ. Father, I pray for those who don't know you. Those who are walking in self-righteousness, trying to justify themselves. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to their hearts today that that's impossible. That you cannot. Nobody is good enough before a holy God. And Lord, through grace, show them the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. That he is the way and the truth and the life. That no one comes to you except through him. And we all need to come to you, God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.